I'm Kendall Giles, and this is the Techno Slipstream Podcast, where we help you navigate complex technologies and their impacts on society through analysis and critique. This is episode 22. For our fourth Winter Moss podcast episode, in today's podcast, we'll critique the advice that we should specialize in one field or skill and dedicate as many hours as possible in training or work in order to achieve maximum success or performance. Whether you're talking about playing the guitar, running a race, writing a novel, or doing scientific research. Especially in today's hyper-specialized, competitive, and technology-infused world, many of us feel behind others because we got a late start in practicing some music instrument or competing in some athletic event. Or maybe we are unhappy in the field we've chosen for our career, but are worried about switching to a new type of job because we'd essentially be starting over. Or maybe you've just not yet found a career path you've been interested in. Is it just too late for you to be successful? We'll explore these questions by doing a deep dive into the book, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World, written by David Epstein. Okay, let's dive in. When we think about performance and training, in a sport, for example, we probably hold as a model someone like Tiger Woods, whose father started training him in golf before Tiger had even turned two years old. Obviously, from Tiger's example, the more dedicated, focused training you have, the faster and more assuredly you will become an elite performer. You can find similar examples in other domains as well, such as chess or playing the violin. In fact, this lesson was captured by Malcolm Gladwell in his 2008 book, Outliers, The Story of Success, and Malcolm called this the 10,000-hour rule, where he said, 10,000 hours is the magic number of greatness. If you want to become elite at some skill or master some discipline, you must dedicate 10,000 hours of dedicated practice to get there. And if you haven't already started, you are behind. But is that lesson true? Are all the activities we participate in, are they all like golf, chess, and playing the violin? What is the most effective path to success? Author David Epstein looked into these questions by researching elite athletes, musicians, scientists, and artists, and published in 2021 his findings in the book, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And from the title of that book, you can guess what he found. In Techno Slipstream Podcast Episode 19, we explored interdisciplinarity, which I believe is very important. And so I'm excited to look at Epstein's book and discuss his findings. But before we do that, I do want to say a few words about the author, David Epstein. Unlike many of the authors of the books we discuss in the Techno Slipstream podcast, David Epstein is not a professor, or maybe I should say he's not a professor yet. Considering Epstein's wide-ranging career, there's a non-zero chance he might one day settle into an academic office. David has a master's degree in environmental science and journalism from Columbia University. And here I'll pull a line from his website. David has worked as an ecology researcher in the Arctic, 
studied geology and astronomy while residing in the Sonoran Desert, and blithely signed up to work on the D-deck of a seismic research vessel shortly after it had been attacked by pirates. Among many other articles as a writer for Sports Illustrated, David was the co-author of the story revealing that Alex Rodriguez, the third baseman of the New York Yankees, had used steroids. David has also written the New York Times bestseller, The Sports Gene, and last year published the number one New York Times bestseller, Range, which is the focus of our deep dive today. From our discussion at the top of the podcast, we noted Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000-hour rule and the lesson that to become successful at something, it's required to put in thousands of hours of dedicated, focused practice. In doing research about this rule, Epstein looked to the work of psychologist Gary Klein, who developed the naturalistic decision-making model of expertise. Klein published research with psychologist Daniel Kahneman, finding that, yes, specialists can gain expertise through intensive training and experience. But the catch is that achieving expertise depends critically on the problem domain. If the problem domain is characterized by repeated patterns or movements with quick feedback regarding success or failure, then, yes, intensive training and experience can lead to expertise. Psychologist Robin Hogarth termed these types of problems kind learning environments, and we've already mentioned some examples, such as chess and golf. There are set, clear rules and patterns, and the human just has to recognize and perform those patterns according to the rules. If you hit a golf ball, you know almost immediately whether you've made a good hit or not. By incorporating this feedback, you can make short, near-term adjustments to your swing for your next shot. Early specialization in these types of domains can lead to expertise, as suggested by the 10,000-hour rule. Of particular interest to the listeners of this podcast, note that engineering and other technical fields are assumed to be kind learning environments. In fact, most college engineering programs start students specializing in engineering disciplinary classwork in the freshman year and almost exclusively thereafter. However, Hogarth noted that there are other domains that are not kind. In fact, Hogarth labeled those other environments wicked. As noted in the book, in wicked domains, the rules of the game are often unclear or incomplete. There may or may not be repetitive patterns, and they may not be obvious, and feedback is often delayed, inaccurate, or both. As an example from the book, in 2007, National Geographic TV sat chess grandmaster Susan Polgar outside in Greenwich Village and drove a large truck with a diagram of 28 chess pieces from the middle of a chess game in front of her. Susan's task was, from this brief glimpse of the pieces from a chess game, to recreate the exact positions on a chessboard sitting in front of her. From just a glance, Susan was able to recreate the game perfectly. However, the second time the truck drove by, the chessboard on the truck depicted even fewer chess pieces, but they were placed at random on the board. This time, Susan was able to correctly position hardly any of the pieces. From years and years of practice, Susan became an expert at recognizing patterns from different stages of a chess game. 
However, all that expertise did not help when the problem was to recreate the positions of randomly placed chess pieces. All that expertise did not help when the rules changed. There are other examples in the book, but this is a good summary. If the amount of early specialized practice in a narrow area were the key to innovative performance, savants would dominate every domain they touched, and child prodigies would always go on to adult eminence. The downside to narrow specialization is what organizational behaviorist Eric Dane calls cognitive entrenchment. In gaining that narrow expertise, you lose flexibility in dealing with situations where the rules have changed. You can't handle wicked domains. So how do you learn in wicked domains? There are multiple case studies explored in the book, but one of them Epstein calls slow learning. By contrast, what he calls fast learning might be how mathematics is often taught in some American schools. Instead of teaching math as a system and helping students make connections to broader concepts when trying to solve a problem, many teachers try to teach math as collections of procedures to be followed. While some parts of math require following procedures, that cannot be the entire teaching strategy. Certainly, some teachers intend to teach connection-making but often try to give hints to the students in student-teacher interactions in order to encourage the student to keep trying. The result, though, is that instead of the student learning to make connections, the students use these teacher hints to create rules that they can follow in order to get the right answer. In one example, the book notes that in their research, University of Chicago professor Lindsay Richland and her collaborators highlighted the stunning degree of reliance community college students 41% of all undergraduate students in the United States have on memorized algorithms. Asked whether A over 5 or A over 8 is greater, 53% of the students answer correctly, barely better than guessing. So instead of using fast learning techniques, like giving lots of hints to students when trying to solve math problems, which focuses in immediate performance gains, Instead, the book points to what cognitive psychologist at Williams College, Nate Cornell, calls desirable difficulties. The idea is to make learning more challenging, slower, and more frustrating in the short term. But this ends up being better in the long run. More examples are in the book, but the book notes that struggling to retrieve information primes the brain for subsequent learning, even when the retrieval itself is unsuccessful. The struggle is real and really useful. Like life, retrieval is all about the journey. There are other chapters, and I won't be able to cover them adequately, but they're worth your time to read. One chapter, for example, deals with the benefits of thinking outside your immediate experience, meaning using analogies from other problem domains to help you work through a problem solution. For example, in 1596, Johannes Kepler worked through a number of analogies for how the planets move in the solar system in order to better understand their motion. Note that this was long before we had notions of momentum or gravity. In his notebooks, he explored analogies of smell, heat dissipation, soul, spirit, power, force, magnets, and whirlpools before settling on the idea that planets can pull each other, as in the moon could affect the tides on Earth. Kepler had to think outside the box in order to solve this mystery of the universe. 
Another chapter takes a look at the commonly heard advice that one only needs sufficient grit in order to overcome life's challenges or problems. For example, are you unhappy in your current career because you haven't developed enough grit to push through and succeed like Olympic athletes? Do you just need more grit for there to be a better match between your work and your abilities? Perhaps, but the book notes that the rules for life are different than the rules for a specific sport. Quote, in the wider world of work, finding a goal with high match quality in the first place is a greater challenge, and persistence for the sake of persistence can get in the way. Another chapter explores the hedgehogs and the foxes of philosopher Isaiah Berlin. Hedgehogs are narrow-view thinkers who view the world through one lens, whereas foxes are integrators or wide-view thinkers who can draw on a wide variety of experiences and ideas. Two key quotes from that chapter are, one, beneath complexity, hedgehogs tend to see simple deterministic rules of cause and effect framed by their area of expertise, like repeating patterns on a chessboard. Foxes see complexity in what others mistake for simple cause and effect. They understand that most cause and effect relationships are probabilistic, not deterministic. And two, in wicked domains that lack automatic feedback, experience alone does not improve performance. Effective habits of mind are more important, and they can be developed. And there's also a great discussion in another chapter about how a culture around narrow thinking and rule following at NASA led to both the Challenger and Columbia shuttle disasters. But as our last chapter from the book that we'll discuss today, I want to dive a little deeper into chapter 12. One of the points of the chapter is how many higher education programs are focusing more and more on specialization at the expense of breadth. In a quote from Arturo Casadevel, Bloomberg Distinguished Professor of Molecular Microbiology and Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, and the Alfred and Jill Summer Professor and Chair of the W. Harry Feinstone Department of Molecular Microbiology and Immunology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, Casadeval is noting the increase in medical education specialization, as well as the corresponding decrease in the pace of research progress, in addition to an increase in the rate of research paper retractions and an increase in the inability to reproduce published research. He says that young scientists are rushed to specialize before they learn how to think. They end up unable to produce good work themselves and unequipped to spot bad or fraudulent work by their colleagues. There is more to this in the book, but I really want to drill down on the example that Epstein uses to illustrate this inability for doctors and scientists to understand the logic behind the tools they use. Now, before I do this, I want to step back and get a little meta. One upgrade to the TechnoSlipstream podcast that I've been considering is to add video. Still have the podcast as a podcast, but also offer video clips or maybe entire episodes on YouTube. I would need more Patreon supporters to make this upgrade due to the added equipment and time, but why that would be a great upgrade for that podcast is because of this example that I'm going to walk through on audio right now. The reason is that this example involves a little bit of math 
And me being able to switch cameras from my face to maybe an overhead shot of me writing out the math on a notebook, or maybe switching to a view of my iPad where I can write with my Apple Pencil. That would be so useful, and I think it would make some of the things I discuss on the podcast more interesting. But here's the example Epstein uses in his book. He says, In 2013, a group of doctors and scientists gave physicians and medical students affiliated with Harvard and Boston University a type of problem that appears constantly in medicine. And listen closely. If a test to detect a disease whose prevalence is 1 over 1,000 has a false positive rate of 5%, what is the chance that a person found to have a positive result actually has the disease, assuming you know nothing about the person's symptoms or signs? Epstein reported that the most common answer from the medical professionals was 95%. And Note that this was a type of problem dealing with diseases and diagnostic tests that these medical professionals were trained to deal with. Unfortunately, those medical professionals were totally wrong. Those medical professionals aren't using the basic logic and reasoning skills of their own tools. Now, I want to commend Epstein for using this example to help prove the point that the trend for increasingly narrow specialization causes problems with basic logic and reasoning skills. However, though the medical doctors got the wrong answer, Epstein went one additional step in showing how to actually calculate the correct answer to this problem. Unfortunately, I think the author himself also made an error of logic and reasoning. Again, I unfortunately don't have a video version of this to show you and walk through this with you, but if you recall the scenario involved something known as a false positive rate. Here again was the question. If a test to detect a disease whose prevalence is 1 over 1,000 has a false positive rate of 5%, what is the chance that a person found to have a positive result actually has the disease, assuming you know nothing about the person's symptoms or signs? I'm sure by now, after two years of COVID in the news, that you've heard of a diagnostic false positive. But let's talk about what that actually means. If you give someone a medical diagnostic test, do you have COVID or do you have cancer or do you have a particular disease, there is a chance the diagnostic test could give an incorrect result. For example, in reality, you might not have the disease, but the test results say you do. This is known as a false positive. And different test procedures and devices have different false positive rates. In our example, we said the test has a false positive rate of 5%. That means that if you give 100 people who in reality do not have the disease, but then still give them the diagnostic test, with a false positive rate of 5%, that means 5 of those 100 people who do not have the disease will still get positive test results. The diagnostic test will indicate that 5 people have the disease when in fact they do not. 5% of the number of people who do not have the disease will be told that they do have the disease by the test. That is a false positive. Okay, now let's get back to the error I think Epstein made in his book. In writing how to correctly perform the calculations to the scenario question in the book, Epstein says, it should be a very simple problem for professionals who rely on diagnostic tests for a living. In a sample of 10,000 people, 
10 have the disease and get a true positive result. 5%, or 500, will get a false positive. Out of 510 people who test positive, only 10, or 1.96%, are actually sick. Now, here's the mistake Epstein made. He said, in a sample of 10,000 people, 5%, or 500, will get a false positive. The problem is that that is just not how you calculate the number of people who have a false positive result. Recall from our definition an example we worked through just moments ago. The false positive rate is the number of people who don't have the disease but who test positive, divided by the total number of people who don't have the disease. When Epstein says, in a sample of 10,000 people, he's talking about a random sample from the population people who have the disease, as well as people who don't have the disease. The denominator in your false positive rate should only include people who don't have the disease, not also people who do have the disease. So the end result of Epstein using an example of how easy it is for medical professionals to misunderstand the tools they use for their career, Epstein, in turn, demonstrates himself a misunderstanding of those same tools. But please don't let that one mistake prevent you from checking out the book. I loved it and got a lot out of reading it. It gives me even more evidence that my interests in interdisciplinarity projects are worthwhile and that my interests in researching the siloed engineering programs and how they focus only on the what, not the why, is problematic. My three biggest suggestions I might make to you based on this book are 1. Read, 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 especially outside of your discipline. Two, don't feel bad or guilty if your interests or career path wanders and deviates. Those cross-disciplinary experiences help give you breadth, which will help you tackle wicked problems. And three, in terms of artificial intelligence, robotics, and automation, which is one of the loves of this podcast, where we hear that automation will take all our jobs, Consider the lesson from earlier in the podcast about kind problems versus wicked problems. Kind problem domains are those with known rules and narrow domains, such as playing chess. In kind domains, the 10,000-hour rule holds. Dedicated practice is the path to success. Though keep in mind that it is also the path to success for AI, robots, and automation systems. If you want to be successful in those domains... You don't need to outcompete other humans. You're going to be trying to outcompete the machines. That's not exactly a competition that is in favor of the human. So narrow specialization in a kind domain for your career has its risks. On the other hand, if you choose a career trying to solve wicked problems, interdisciplinarity matters, breadth matters, and automation will continue to struggle to make progress here. And that's a wrap for episode 22. I hope you enjoyed this Winter Moss deep dive into David Epstein's book, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. Note that I can use your support over on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Giles. But in any case, again, thanks for listening. And until next time, I'll see you in the Techno Substream.